Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, well, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. Uh, this is the word of God for us today. And the people said, just before you sit down, just let me pray for us. Lord, would you take these words, this, this scripture, Lord, would you take this moment with Jesus and would you plant it in our hearts today like good seed, that it may bear good fruit. May it bring something fruitful into our lives as we look at this together and as your spirit is at work amongst us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. Imagine with me for a moment getting to ask a question to your absolute hero about how they go about growing something they are terrific at. How does a great in their field, an absolute, an absolute great, keep the inner fire burning within them? How? How do they do it? You know, imagine getting to ask Dave Grohl or Taylor Swift or Bob Dylan how they go about staying passionate about songwriting. Or, or imagine asking Steve Jobs or Coco Chanel or Salvador Dali how they kept fostering a life of creativity. Now, one of my spiritual heroes is a philosopher named Dallas Willard. And recently I was watching an interview where he was asked during a Q&A what his morning quiet time was what his prayer life looked like. And my ears pricked up as I was watching this interview. It's like, I've never thought to ask a spiritual giant that question. Uh, how do you just do this every day? What a great question. And his answer, his answer was two prayer journeys he takes every morning before he's even gotten out of bed. He prays the Lord's Prayer and he prays the 23rd Psalm, saying this, he not just rattles them off, but slowly works through them each slowly, saying each line and staying there a while, taking time to soak it in, to look around and to observe, to chew on the words and to put himself in the scene. He spoke of how he would sit with each line and he'd kind of unfold it, almost like if you can imagine an accordion opening up, each line opening and expanding. And he would add more lines of his own around each point and he would reflect in quiet in between each one. So the disciples have come to Jesus and the disciples have asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And now last week, that was the sermon last week, Lord, teach us to pray. And we looked at this thing that the disciples already knew how to pray. They've already grown up praying. So when they say that question, what they're actually saying is, Lord, we wanna pray like you pray. We want to be like you in our prayer lives. And Dallas Willard, as an apprentice to Jesus, puts himself into their shoes. He takes Jesus' answer on board for himself and he sets off on the journey of discovering prayer as Jesus taught to pray. And after years of reflecting on that Lord's Prayer for so many mornings before he gets out of bed in such depth, 
He actually moved beyond just memorizing a set of words, something off by heart. And he actually found himself slowly paraphrasing it into his own words, which he actually published. And so this is the Lord's Prayer by Dallas Willard, his paraphrase. Dear Father, always near us, may your name be treasured and loved. May your rule be completed in us. May your will be done here on earth in just the way it is done in heaven. Give us today the things we need today and forgive us our sins and impositions on you as we are forgiving all who in any way offend us. Please don't put us through trials, but deliver us from everything bad. Because you're the one in charge, you have all the power and the glory too is all yours forever, which is just the way we want it. Whoopee! After praying that and the 23rd Psalm, Dallas Willard would sit on the edge of his bed and I found this the most profound part of what he said. His last prayer before he starts his day is this, the Lord is here. And then he would make his coffee. Now Willard isn't messing with scripture here. He is not bending it to say something that it's not. He's not being a heretic. He's not removing parts that he doesn't like. He's not adding to it. He's not manipulating it. Morning after morning, through deep meditation after meditation, he has seen a fullness in Jesus' teaching on how to pray. And himself, he has then used it, opened it up, and he has looked around. And eventually he's found his own way to say the same thing, but with his own words. This isn't heresy. This is what the prayer that Jesus taught was always meant to do in us. It's meant to be a vision for us to see. It's meant to be a learning framework for us to get there. It's a theological paradigm for us to sit prayer in. And we can find the key truths to a heart in love with God through this prayer. And then we can find words to say that we may then become people of our own words in the same direction that the Lord's Prayer is trying to point us to. Um, Think of it like this. It's like the framework of a home being built. The Lord's Prayer is like the framing going up. And when we put frames up, I don't know if you've ever done this, but we, we suddenly get a sense of the size of the building. We get a sense of where the walls are actually going to go. We can actually, instead of just visualizing it, we can stand there and we can start to figure out the scope of the building, the proportions, the space that we have. Now, it's not the complete house yet. You actually can't live in a house that's only frames. The walls themselves have to be clad, the electrics have to be fit, the the plumbing has to be run, and eventually paint and decorations need to go on to really make it feel like it's something unique, like a real home. But the Lord's Prayer is like the framing of a building. It's a good metaphor to hold today, because without framework, we will not have a house. To fully experience prayer, we actually need to work on and continue to build from the frames that Jesus himself gave us as his vision for how to build. Behind every award-winning and beautiful home that is in Homestyle magazine, between everything we see that looks award-winning, there are frames, often unseen, doing the work of holding the structure. These frames are incredibly important. And when they are compromised, whether it be by water damage and rot, the entire building is at risk of, of, of failing. So it's incredibly crucial today that we we think about this together for our prayer lives. For a prayer-filled life, we must get the framework right. 
And so we, as like the disciples, we've come to Jesus like we did last Sunday and we've said to Jesus, we've said, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, give us your keys, is how we put it last week. Check it out on the podcast if you missed it. We are choosing to follow the master builder as he shows us how it's done. And so with that, I want to spend today taking some time to look at the framework of the Lord's Prayer. I want to look at the frames as they go up and the kind of building it starts to give us. What are the frames of the house? What must we get right at the skeletal level of our homes of prayer that we can then decorate them well and live in them well? How do we find our own words? Well, the scripture said this. Let's just remind ourselves of it. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. This is his framework. This is his paradigm. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. You know, if you've been sitting in a Protestant church most of your life, you've probably heard this as the Lord's Prayer. If you've been in a Catholic church, you've probably heard it as the Our Father. This is a famous prayer. And even people who don't frequent church probably know of this prayer. This is an important piece. But in Jesus' his vision here, it's not just about reciting it, it's about realising there's some frames going up, there's, there's framework being applied here and here's the six different frames firstly, Father that's the first frame, second frame, Kingdom third frame, here and now, there's a thing about time and space going on, fourthly, needs fifthly, forgiveness sixth, protection now, let's think of it like this, because that's just a list next to a nice picture. Here's a little bit something, hopefully a little bit more helpful. Um, this here is that same idea of the framework, but put into a bit of a movement. The idea here being that we can pray around the wheel. We can pray around the circle. So we start at the top at Father. We move around to Kingdom. We move around to here and now. And that whole first three things, that first half, that's all about an orientation towards God. It's about opening us up towards another reality, towards God's reality, towards Him. And then it changes gear. It actually changes posture. We cross that little dotted line and we start moving into three things that are now actually oriented towards us, to be honest. It's actually we become the focus of the prayer and we actually start to ask for the things that are right in front of us. So we ask for the needs we have. We, um, we deal with forgiveness and we talk about, uh, and, we, and, we, and we pray for protection. And then the idea is, is that the wheel starts again and we move back into adoration of our Father. And so from this framework, what we can do is we can slowly stop at each point and a bit like Dallas Willard, we can stop and look around and see what we see. And so we can start to reword that and we can start to put our own details in. But we pray with this framework that's holding us in good shape. So today what I want to do I'm just going to teach through each of these really quickly. Now, to be honest, disclaimer right off the bat, there's like a year's worth of teaching in here. Honestly, there is. There's a, there's a, I could do a sermon series for a year on those six things. You just watch me, 2023. <laughs> so today, I'm, uh, sometimes this is helpful, sometimes it's not. But today, I just want to throw a bunch of things onto each one and hope that some of it sticks. So today what I want to do is just go, here's a, here's a couple of thoughts on each one. It's not going to be everything at all, but it's just going to be something that I hope is helpful. So the first one, God as our Father. Or as the word is actually translated in the, in the scriptures is the word Abba. In Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, this was a revolutionary way to address God. Absolutely revolutionary. Uh, the New Testament scholar, uh, Joachim Jeremias, he argues 
there is not a single example of the use of Abba as an address to God in the whole of Jewish literature. Do we know why? What did they call God? It wasn't Abba. What was it? Does anyone know? Yahweh, which is this word of breath. And it doesn't, you know, it's, they, don't, they don't even say Lord. Like it's like there's, there's, a, there's a reverence for this name. And so this word Abba seems absolutely preposterous to them that, that this is how you could come to God. Now I know it's really hard for some of us today to be sitting here and to grasp that we could approach God and call him Abba, Father, and that'll be due to a bunch of things. It'll be due to even things like ruptured relationships with our own human fathers. But um, to quote my friend John Coma here, he says this, for Jesus, what comes to mind when you think about God will make or break your prayer life. So we need to begin to repair and to heal the false images of who God is. And for a lot of us, the deepest transformation of our prayer lives is not by trying harder, it's by fully accepting the first two words of the framework today. It's by starting with these first two words, our Father. We're only, we're only a couple of words into the journey and already there's a repairing work that will begin as our image of God is transformed by that statement. Now, many of us would like to put different words into that place, wouldn't we? Many of us would like to change the word Abba to some other things. But what happens there is actually what we're doing is we are transferring experiences, sometimes very valid ones, that we have had with other people and we're applying them to God. You know, if our father was demanding, if we experienced abuse, or, or if we um, had, a, had a father who was absent, to say this word is, is, is tricky terrain. You know, if we never satisfied our father figures in our lives, it's very hard to start praying towards God and to, to, to eradicate that idea of I've got, to, I've got to perform for you. I have to perform for you. But we must, we must do the work of replacing old images for new ones. We need to exchange some of the ideas, the transferred ideas, the experienced ideas of earthly realities, and we need to actually think about, um, we need to do some work of repairing what we think about when we think about God. I got there in the end. We need to start prayerfully believing that God has generously welcomed us each. We need to realize that God has our best intentions in his heart. And when we start prayer fully believing that God has this generous welcome and good intentions for us, it completely changes the rest of the posture of how we then go off to pray. Now, now remember, this is a framework. This is a framework. So, so we can add some things in here to fatten this up a little bit. We can start to put some stuff on the walls. So, so could I propose that if, if our Father is, is hard for you today, well, a couple of things that you could try and do as you ponder this in prayer would be to do something like this. Take Psalm 145, where it says this, the Lord, or you could even in prayer change that to Abba, is merciful and compassionate. Abba is slow to get angry and rich in unfailing love. Abba is good to all. Abba has compassion on all that he has made. You could join the psalmist 
And you could allow a new idea of God as your father to start to be formed by that beautiful scripture. Or, or you could go to Jesus' teaching in Luke's gospel where he teaches about how God is like a prodigal Abba, the father, who, who runs towards his prodigal son. This broken-hearted father who does not turn away from his son but runs down the driveway to greet him. This father who welcomes a lost son home, inviting him in, who holds a party for him, who showers him with love and promises all that he has is his. These are the ideas that Jesus wants to fill our imaginations with. A generous father, a redeeming father, a loving father, one who is kind. And so this is the work of this prayer. It has to start to reform those images into new ones. And all of this, when done rightly, should lead us to a certain type of prayer. The prayer is this. Whoop, click. Praise and adoration. To not be adoring God is a sure sign you haven't seen Him rightly yet. Because there's a cause and an effect thing going on here. If we find ourselves scared or grumpy or hiding or performing, actually that's the effect of an idea of God over here that's leading to that outcome. And so for us to be people of worship and adoration means we have to have seen a God so loving and compassionate and merciful and beautiful and good that we couldn't help but give God that response. So we can look at the metrics, we can look at the things we're doing and figure out, have we actually seen the right picture of God? I love how Tom Wright puts it. He says it this way. When we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship Him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet fully understood who He is and what He's done. See, worship is a, is a, is a symptom Worship shows us the condition of our heart and worship shows us if we've seen the reality of God yet. And so Jesus' prayer starts with all of that in mind. Our Father. Abba. Oh, Abba, may you be, may you be holy and set apart in your fatherness. <sighs> Part two. It moves around to the idea of Kingdom. You still with me? A kingdom is a space of rule. It's the range of a ruler's effective will where they, where what they want done gets done. So God's kingdom, God's kingdom is where God's rule is in charge and his will is being done. Our kingdom, our kingdom is the range of our effective rule and will. So for example, our bodies, they are little domains of a kingdom. We run them. They're ours. Hands off. My car is actually my kingdom. When I am driving it, it is mine. <laughs> Don't touch my stereo. Do not kick the back of my seat if you're my son. Do not leave any food in the cracks between the seats. Lemonade ice creams only. Lemonade popsicles only. And do not touch the headlining. I hate it when people do that. It's my kingdom. It's my effective rule. I'm in charge. Now when we pray, there's a kingdom we have to deal with straight away. We have to deal with our own kingdoms. We have to echo the prayer of Jesus himself who prayed, not my will, but yours be done. So we have to actually relinquish that actually we can't do anything ahead in the rest of the prayer if it's our kingdom proceeding. 
We have to drop it here and we have to leave it behind. We have to choose here to partner with God. We have to choose His kingdom and ask that it's His kingdom that may come in place. Which brings me to the next point. Remember again, a lot, a lot to say on these things, but we're going to keep on moving. Part three, here and now. Now, for the sake of being a little bit briefer today, I just want to suggest if you missed the talk we showed a couple of weeks ago on Labor Weekend by Tim Mackey called Paradise Now, um, we showed that on Labor Weekend. You might want to go back and watch it on YouTube because essentially that talk is like part three of the Lord's Prayer just blowing out into an epic talk. But as a quick teaching point on this today with you in the room, if the kingdom of God is God's rule and will in charge, then to talk about this, we are talking about something of time. What we're actually talking about is the time of God's future breaking into now. At the very end of the script, are you, are you clicking me like a, like a poet, like a beat poet? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I've got amens over here. I've got jazz poet thing over here. Anyway, that was good. At the very end of the scriptures, at the end of the book in Revelation, we see this picture of God making all things new. We see this image of fulfillment where life is as it should be, where God's creation is as it should be. The prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled and echoed in Revelation. There is no more mourning. There's no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow. All of the fullness of God's reality has come into being in a renewed creation. All is shalom. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's shalom. It's right as it should be. It's right as it should be. And that future is the picture that is breaking in when Jesus says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven now. It's, what he's saying is, would that future travel here, break in? Would your work arrive in our midst. You know, Jesus' gospel, his very good news was that message in Mark 1.15. That's what he says. He says, time's up. The kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and see. He's saying, time's up. That age is done. This is a new age now as we look towards the things of God's future, breaking in amongst me, Jesus the King. Now, now let's not get this wrong. Let's not get this wrong. I want to speak very clearly about something here because I hear some of these little facets about the kingdom sometimes and they're not used correctly. I just want to correct a couple of them today humbly, okay? But here's one of them. Firstly, God's kingdom is not the church. God's kingdom is not the church. I hear people say like, the church is the kingdom. It's not. God's kingdom is not social justice activism, okay? God's kingdom is not social justice activism. God's kingdom is not good deeds. Good deeds are not the kingdom. Okay, those things and many more, they are the vessels of the kingdom, the containers of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is God's future reality, all made right, breaking into our midst. A life where we're experiencing and tasting the breaking in of His power. It's this miraculous and supernatural thing. It's God's presence and God's presence moving in power amongst us. It's where there's healings, where there's restoration, where there's deliverance. These are the moments we can truly say, as those in the Gospels around Jesus would say, wow, the kingdom of God has come amongst you as those things have happened. We can point to them and say, that, that looks like the kingdom. All of those other things are great vessels, but they're not the full thing. And we just got to get our mind around that when we're talking about this prayer. 
we're praying to a big picture of God's vision of all good things coming to pass in his redemptive work. And so because of that, what we can do is because that's all about presence, it's all about the fullness that God is dwelling with his creation again, we can pray knowing that the Lord is here. Didn't you just love that little line about Dallas Willard? The Lord is here. Why? Because he's become aware of God's kingdom at hand, of all things being right and true and good, tasteable and touchable for him. Like the ancient Celtic Christians would say, this is a thin place. A thin place is where the reality of God is near. Energy of God animating and moving behind the reality we find ourselves in. And we can experience that when we come to pray. We truly can. So that's the first half of the circle, the orientation towards God half. Are you still with me? And now we cross over into the second half, a different posture. So that first half gives us a big glimpse of a father of love who is joyfully, gladly, beautifully seeking to restore and make all things new. That's how prayer starts. And then we move around and we start talking about some particular needs. Firstly, give us um, the bread we need. Now, last week I briefly sketched out that we live in a culture that can do so much for itself that we often struggle to ask for what we need in prayer. You know, money can actually fix a lot of the things that we might just end up praying about. So instead, we just buy our way out of the problem. Um, Medicine can sort out a lot of the things that we might need to pray about regarding health. So we just medicate our way out of these things. Um, Clever thinking, a good brainstorm, a a strategic meeting, They can all sort us out of business holes that we might find ourselves in. So we just ideate our way out of problems that we might need to instead pray to find a solution for. But here, at this point of the prayer, this frame, is perhaps the lowest bar of what prayer truly is. It's asking for help. Asking for help. It's asking for help when we are in need. Now, as a parent... All day long, my children are asking me for what they need. And I mean all day. It starts in the morning with the first squawk from Florence's bed as she starts to wake up and tells us she's hungry. And then it joins, it's joined by Jimmy. Jimmy wanting to make his breakfast to start his day. And on and on it goes. Can we play a little bit more, please, Daddy? Can you read a story for me, please, Daddy? I need a drink of water, Daddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On and on we go. And as, it, as the day rolls on, I realize I'm just dealing with problem solving. My kids are asking me for help and I'm having to deal with their requests. Now, teaching a little bit further on from this little moment in Luke, Jesus says this a little further on. He says this in verses uh, 11 to 13. You fathers, ooh, I'm a father, so this one's personal. You fathers, If your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? (laughs) Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, now Jesus is actually using hyperbole here. Like, we didn't laugh, but like, man, His crowd would have been like, you know, like, that's, that's just stupid. 
He's using hyperbole, but his point is true. His point is this, as a father, there's no way that I would want to disappoint or let my children down. It is my absolute joy to give them even the simplest things like their morning breakfast. So as Jesus is teaching, he's trying to say, how much more than that does your father in heaven want to give you his spirit? All of this is to say this, God is a gift-giving Father, Again, it's an idea we have to start repairing in our minds. We're so used to not coming to God for help because we can do so much of it ourselves. We're losing track of the fact that actually this is who God is. He's a gift-giving Father. And I know that this raises a bunch of questions, a big, big questions about things like unanswered prayer. I've asked God for things and he hasn't given them to me. Those are so valid questions. They are so valid. I have many of those stories and many of those questions myself. But the teaching point of this framework from Jesus still remains. We are allowed to ask and God wants us to do so. You know, when my son doesn't feel that he can ask me for something, there's a problem. The one who I care deeply, the one who I care deeply about, my boy, when he can't ask me for something, something's wrong. I may not be able to give him what he wants. Already I've disappointed him this morning. He wanted a chocolate croissant, a pinot chocolat. <laughs> no, Jimmy. It's been mum's birthday. You've had way too much cake the last two days. No pinot chocolat for you. Oh, daddy. No. I will disappoint him sometimes. But he is allowed to ask. The invitation is to ask. The invitation is that I get to see into his heart. I get to know him a little more. And knowing what he needs and what he desires as a father, that is, that is what kills me. That is like the best bit. I love seeing it when he opens up to me. And so the question is, what do you need right now? Well, the promise from Jesus in his framework today is, you are allowed to ask. You are allowed to ask. Fifth point is forgiveness. Now let's just go back to the scripture just for a moment here because I know we, we haven't looked at it for a bit. So we're up to uh, the, the, verse, uh, the start of verse four there. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now I just want you to notice the progression here. There's a progression. Hopefully you can see it. It's a progression of receiving and offering. Receiving and giving. So at this point of the prayer, we go in, we start by looking at our own lives. We confess. We receive God's forgiveness for us. And then there's an expectation here from Jesus. You then pray that forgiveness to those around you. You pass it on. The truth is, is that in all relationships, in all marriages, all endeavors with another human being, they will require the giving and receiving of forgiveness. They just will not work without them. Now, this is the courageous stuff here. This is not easy. Again, like I said, there's a year's worth of sermons in here and I reckon half of you would be on this, this point alone. But I would say this. I think this is one of the most transformative parts of the whole prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. This is a little powerball. 
It's a little power ball of a bunch of types of prayer, confession, repentance, intercession, faith, hope, love. It's all bundled up in this little moment. Now C.S. Lewis wrote a terrific essay on forgiveness where he framed up the power of forgiveness, not as just excusing someone and forgetting about it, but in choosing to hold yourself in light of those things in mercy, holding the person in mercy. He says this, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing it in all of its horror, dirt, meanness and malice and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. Lewis B. Smeads, he actually took this idea from Lewis a little bit further. He writes a couple of things here. Building on the idea, he says this, forgiving does not erase the bitter past. A healed memory is not a deleted memory. Instead, forgiving what we cannot forget creates a new way to remember, a new way to move forward. We change the memory of our past into a hope for the future. Lewis B. Smeads goes on to say a little bit more. He says this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. One more line from Lewis B. Smeads, he says this, you will know that forgiveness has begun when you recall those who hurt you and you feel the power to wish them well. You know, to pray and to forgive is not to just brush away. It's not whimsical like that, but it is to bring to mind those who have wronged us and not hold them in guilt of bitterness and anger, but to hold them in a, complete, a completely different way, to hold them in mercy and in hope. And we feel this opening of our lives towards them. We, 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 rather than closing our lives off, we actually realize that as we do so, uh, we are actually creating, a, a, if we, sorry, if we close them off, we actually realize we're, contain, sorry, we're creating like a cage for ourselves. But what forgiveness does is it opens us towards the future. And I know that this one's incredibly hard as well, a little bit like the last one. I know there'll be all kinds of questions in the room as I talk about this today. There'll be questions, very, very legitimate questions like, well, what about things like triggers, triggers for trauma? What about revisiting toxic things and toxic narratives or toxic environments? I understand all of those complexities. I do it a little bit. I'm not a trauma counselor. That's not what I'm offering today. But I do believe in Jesus's wisdom and in Jesus' wisdom, I've experienced this myself. When I've had to stay in the game of being a Christian, forgiveness has been at the crux of it. I've experienced this myself. The, the, the Christian is not called to be a person who just whimsically forgets. They are be, the called people to be living in mercy. People of mercy. People who have received it and are offering it. So, so this might take a journey, one that's a lot bigger than just praying a simple little prayer on the side of your bed. It might take things like seeing a counsellor. It might take reaching out for pastoral care. It might take involving community around you in the journey of this one. But I do say sincerely, the work must be done. The work must be done. We are called to be people of forgiveness for ourselves and for others. The progression in Jesus' prayer tells us a hard truth. We cannot do much forgiving if we haven't first done the slow and careful work of receiving God's forgiveness for ourselves. The first crucial work in that whole progression is us. We must receive forgiveness. We must, let me paraphrase this into another way, 
allow God to love us. Dan Allender says this, God is continually, literally, second by second, covering our sin under his son's blood and forgiving us our sins. God cannot love us unless he forgives us and he cannot forgive us without a commitment to love us. Selah. Just think about that for a second. God cannot love us unless he forgives us and he cannot forgive us without a commitment to love us. On to the last stop of the prayer. Point six, protection. Protect us on the way. Now the final piece here is crucial and it's often actually the most forgotten of of the prayer actually for most of us as Westerners. We forget this bit too easily. Um, the The gate to follow Jesus is wide. The invitation in, it's wide. But the way from there gets incredibly narrow. We are in a spiritual battle and we can be taken off that path way too easily. And, and so to pray for protection is to pray that we would remain on the right and good way. To pray for protection is to say, I do not want to be distracted off this way. As Jesus has invited me into a way of life, I want to stay here and on this way. Let nothing take me off. So this is confession, this is repentance, and this is spiritual warfare. This is a place in which we will confront our temptations. It's also to know that we are in a battle, not just with ourselves and our own temptation, but also to acknowledge that there is an enemy. There's an enemy that is the devil, the fallen one, who is also the master of the king of the fallen world. Uh, And if that interests you, if that just sounds like a complete load of nonsense, I want to send to you the way of a really good book called Live No Lies. This is by John Mark Comer. And the summary of this book is essentially this. We are in a war and we are being assaulted all the time by three adversaries, the devil, the flesh, and the world. And John Mark argues that these three adversaries are working together to launch an assault on us that form uh, three things. Firstly, deceptive ideas, lies, lies about who we are, lies about how things work and um, what we need. And then these lies then play out into disordered desires where we start to live those lies. And then they are normalized by the fallen world. He says this, our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and to liberate them with the weapon of truth. He goes on to say this, You become what you give your mind to. So in prayer, remember this is about prayer, this is a prayer framework talk. In prayer, as we pray through Jesus' vision of prayer, we are orienting ourselves towards God by giving him our mind's attention. And then here, as we come around to the end, we are confessing and saying our intention, our desire is to have no other way but his This is our best self going through life with Jesus. We want to stay focused and we want to stay deliberate on this way that he's called us. Because I would argue this, 
the greatest prayer of spiritual warfare is not when we sort of clench our fists and shout in tongues at the back of the prayer meeting. The greatest spiritual warfare prayer that any of us could pray today is to take five minutes of silence and quiet and to fully focus our mind and our being on Jesus, wholly and fully. <laughs> That's spiritual warfare today. And to do that, at this part of the framework, you might then end up doing what the footnote in your Bible says, or if you go to Matthew's version of the scripture, the bigger version of the teaching in uh, Matthew, it loops back to where it starts, and it says this, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. I, I didn't realize, but that is actually trying to inform that last statement. Keep us protected, how? by focusing back on who you are. It finishes this thing up. I choose those things, not the devil's, not ours, not the world's, not the false power and the corrupt things around me, I'm choosing God's. And with that, the circle is complete and we are back to where we started. We've oriented right back around to the Father, the kingdom and his power being amongst us in the here and now. How are we going, we okay? Great. I started today by asking if you could ask a great in their field, how do you keep the inner fire burning? Wouldn't it be cool to ask someone that? Well, as disciples, we've just watched that play out. The disciples have come and made their only request to Jesus to teach them how to do something. It's the only one in the Gospels. And their one question was this, teach us to pray. Teach us how to do it like you do it. And this was his vision. This was his answer. This was how prayer could look from Jesus. This is what it contained. These are the frames and this is the house that can be built. So we've taken a tour around the building site of Jesus' vision for prayer. We've looked at the frames and now we just need to start filling in the walls and uh, building the house of prayer for ourselves. And so to finish, to do that today, um, I don't want to give you more theory I don't want to give you another bang and quote. What I want to offer you today is just simply a practice of prayer. I want to just do this with you for these last several minutes. Uh, Nick, I wonder if you could just come and join us just because, um, just to bring a bit of beauty into this moment, please, in our stark school hall. But uh, we haven't had communion today. Some of you might have noticed that. We haven't um, laid out the cups and the bread because today, I, I really sense that this was our moment of communion, was to come together as people of prayer and to pray as the Lord teaches us to pray. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you just to simply relax, take a deep breath, close your eyes, and if you wanted to do anything else with your body, I'd invite you to just hold your hands, maybe just open on your lap or just up in front of you, like, like you're offering yourself to God. It's, it's a way of making the posture of your body come into alignment with the same sense that you want your heart to come into. It's just a posture to say, Lord, I'm open. Here I am. I'm here. And we just take a moment to, to still we just take a moment to just breathe in and just catch and make sure that we are truly here. Just try and be here.
And with that, allow me to pray for you. And to do that, all I'm going to do is put up those six frames. And I'm just going to pray off each one for a little bit. So our Father, our Father, the God who is the prodigal God, the God who has run towards us and offered away, the God who has provided mercifully and compassionately and kindly to all of us, given Himself, the Father who is compassionate, kind on all that He has made, all of creation, not just us, but all things. The Father who in in Ephesians it says that it has given you great joy to put this plan into action through Christ. That your joy may be complete, it says. You're a God of joy. And your gaze towards us today is a gaze of love. Your gaze towards us is a gaze of your best intentions for us. Your gaze towards us is attention. So we just hold ourselves in your gaze today, Lord. And Lord, we ask for your kingdom to come. Lord, we ask for your story to be the story that we are living in. We, Lord, we, we ask for your work to be the work we are celebrating. Lord, we ask for your reality to be our reality in greater ways. Lord, turn up that dial in our lives where we are not just sort of on autopilot walking around and just doing our own thing. Waken us up to your kingdom, your reality at hand. Awaken us to your rule. Awaken us to your reign. You are our Lord, no other. You're either the king of this or you're not our king at all. And we ask for your work to be done here as it is in heaven. We ask for your, 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 your goodness.